You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. In a three-step process, we read, think, and apply the biblical text. I'm Andrew Kingsley, co-podcasting as always alongside the world-famous Drew Kaiser. And uh, we are in the book of John, and we're in chapter 10 today. We just finished up chapters 8 and 9 last week, talking about the light of the world, talking about Jesus healing the blind man, and now we're here in John chapter 10. It's going to put us in a little bit different of a context. Uh, this is going to be fast forwarded to December in the wintertime. Uh, we're going to be in Jerusalem, um, specifically at the temple here, or at least we will be down in verses 22 to 39. Um, so a little bit of time has passed, most likely between chapter 9 and chapter 10. There are some commentators that will argue that the end of chapter 9 is connected to the beginning of chapter 10. Um, and then once you get down to verse 22, you have a new scene. But either way, uh, we're going to move forward in the timeline here, and Jesus is going to finish his first stint of ministry in Jerusalem by the time we get to the end of chapter 10. He's going to leave and uh, go back outside of Jerusalem. But there are a lot of things uh, for us to get into today. I guess if we had a title for this one, it would be Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Yeah, and uh, it, it begins with this allegory of the Good Shepherd in uh, verse 1 of chapter 10. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way That man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." That's technically not a parable. Uh, a parable is like a simile, and uh, this is an allegory, an extended metaphor, where mm-hmm. you know one thing is compared to another. So you got the sheepfold. It's uh, probably best interpreted as as you know God's people, and then yeah. uh, you've got the thieves and the robbers and the wolves, and that's anything that would try to enter into the sheepfold and harm. God's people, whether that be temptation or false doctrine or false teachers. The hired hands, of course, are the Jewish leaders, and they're not the the shepherd himself. So that's how it begins. And, uh, you know, John recognizes in verse 6 that this was a figure of speech, but the disciples, yeah. as per usual, do not understand what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they're, they're a little... Uh, they have a little trouble with whether he's speaking literally or figuratively mm-hmm. at the time. They figure it out later on after the Holy Spirit comes, yeah. I assume. But uh, Similar John, to the parables. Yeah, yeah. And this brings us to the third I am statement. Just as a reminder, the first one was I'm the bread of life from John 6. Uh, last week we discussed the second I am statement, I am the light of the world. Now we're ready for the third one in verses 7 through 10. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
So this is one that's often missed because it lies in the shadow of the fourth I am statement, which we're about to get to. But this is an official I am statement of John, one of the seven, I am the door of the sheep. He says, All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Can I stop you here and ask you about uh, the thief that he mentions here? The thief comes in to steal and destroy and then back up to verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Mm-hmm. Do you, who do you think those are references to? Should we save that for the no, think section, or can we just not necessarily? So it says, "All who come before me are thieves and robbers." I, I don't think you we should take that too far back and say that's Moses and Elijah. You know, I don't, yeah, I don't I know where you're with going that. with that. But. Well, I'm just wondering. Do you think he's referring to like false Christ at this point? It's quite possible. Maybe, maybe even the Pharisees. Do you think definitely this is... the Pharisees okay. qualify? Uh, the you know Caiaphas and the Jewish rulers at the time, um, mm. those claiming to be their religious leaders. He says those those people are false. They're thieves. They're they're not the door through which you enter into. The, the fold of safety that God mm-hmm. has built for his people. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting. He says the thief comes only to s- steal and kill and destroy. And what you find the Pharisees doing a lot in the Gospels, you know, we just had um, the Pharisees trying to kill the woman, stone the woman that was caught in adultery. Um, and then also several times they plot to kill Jesus. Uh, throughout the gospel, yeah. and so they I just think it's, do. it's interesting that the Pharisees, as they're introduced, you know, they're kind of this character of bringing death, um, and then Jesus is bringing life. You know, the the big contrast between light and darkness that's here in John, and then Jesus just flat out says here, "They come to bring death. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly." Yeah. Another sharp contrast. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move to the fourth I am statement, verses 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. Now, like I said, this one often eclipses the third one, and um, I'll probably talk more about the significance of both of these statements later on. But this is the fourth mm-hmm. one. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd." Uh, He goes from that into his sacrifice. So he doesn't say this, but he could also, we, you know, could also count this as maybe a a third I am statement in this chapter because he kind of moves into himself as a sheep, Mm -hmm. uh, a, a sheep, a sacrifice here because he says, 
I'm making a voluntary sacrifice. Verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And again, as usual in the book of John, and in other places his words cause division. Uh, We have this statement again, you have a demon and then there are other people who actually believe in him. And that closes out, as you said, that, that first section of chapter 10, which may or may not go along with the second section. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of take the position that all of this is at the same time because verse 22 says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't say after this, as we see in other places in John. It's at that time. So even though the... Language from ten one down to twenty one precedes this dateline feast of dedication. Uh, you know, it seems like this is all being said at the feast of dedication, and okay. so I kind of look at it all together. Not to say that I know that for sure, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about what the feast of dedication is in the next part of the podcast. But as we continue to read. We see that uh, Jesus makes this bold statement in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, you remember from our last podcast, he said this similar thing in John chapter 8, verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. And we talked about how I am is the name of God, and he's basically making a claim to be divine. He's doing the same thing right here. I and the Father are one. And they pick up stones to stone him. They're ready to kill him. And uh, so he, you know, deftly, deftly handles their aggression mm-hmm. as uh, they are about to stone him for blasphemy. That that, that would be their claim. Yeah. Uh, he quotes a very interesting passage of Scripture yeah. that I would have missed had he not pointed it out from Psalm 82, verse 6. Mm-hmm. He says, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? Now, in context, this statement in the Psalms was aimed not at angels or, or you know, the Messiah or some figure like that, but the leaders of the people of God. Judges so just, and prophets, those sorts of people. Right, yeah, yeah. So, human beings. Really interesting that they use that word. Yeah, and I'm assuming... I, did you look it up? I'm assuming it's Elohim uh, I can't in the plural, it up, but um, it kind of... Rem- well, anyway, that that that's Good what it said. He, he knows the Bible so well that he knew about this little statement in the Psalms buried deep in there where people are called gods. Mm -hmm. And so he is, right now, he's just trying to keep them from stoning him. And Mm -hmm. uh, and he points out that the Scripture cannot be broken. You know, the Scripture says that, and there is an appropriate context in which chief priests or leaders or kings can be referred to, to as gods. The Scripture cannot be broken, If civil authorities can be gods, how can the Jews accuse Jesus of blasphemy, whom God had consecrated and sent down from heaven? And then he he points out, you know, his miracles that he has been working. The testimony of his works in verses 37 and 38. Now, they weren't convinced by that. Uh, They tried to arrest him, and he escaped from them. And he had to, as you mentioned in the beginning, 
had to kind of leave Jerusalem at this time and go out to that mm-hmm. wilderness area where he and John had been baptizing over on, would it be the east side of the Jordan River? Um, went across the Jordan, yeah. Yeah. So he's out in that Perean wilderness or maybe the Decapolis area, the Ju- uh, not the Judean wilderness, but over on the other side of the Jordan River. And uh, he remained there where it was quieter, uh, where his where he could extend his ministry longer. He's already said he's ready to lay down his life, but his hour had not yet come. Mm-hmm. I think verse 41 is interesting. Many came to them, him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And that's our reading for today. So this is, by the time we get to the end of this chapter, we've made a big step in the progression, I guess, of Jesus' ministry and the things that he teaches. Because uh, you have the Jews coming to him and just say, look, tell us, are you the Christ? Just plainly tell us. Which he already has up to this point. And I guess mm-hmm. we can maybe save some of that for the next section. But yeah. he's already told them, and they don't know, they can't and I kind of glossed him. over that, but that's what led mm-hmm. to him saying, I and the Father are one. Yeah. And some people kind of paint the picture of Jesus' ministry as if he kind of kept this to himself all the way up to his trials. And then whenever the high priest put him under oath and said, I adjure you by the living God, are you the Son Are you the Son of God? And, and he says, you know, I am the Son of God. That's where he finally reveals the shocking mm-hmm. identity that he's been keeping hidden. No, all throughout the book of John, which has as its purpose to show the divinity of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's saying over and over and over again, I am God, which goes back to C.S. Lewis's argument, and probably whoever made that before Lewis, yeah. that he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, because he didn't go around saying, look, I've got these teachings from God, or mm-hmm. you know, these are ethics you should follow, or here is some truth. But he's saying... I am the Son of God, worship me. Yeah. And and that that makes him different from any other religious leader or founder uh, that has founded a major religion besides Christianity. Coming back over uh, John 10, let's just go back over it again now that we've read through it. And uh, there's some some really interesting ideas that we need to flesh out. Mm -hmm. And we'll start with uh, I am statements number three and four, uh, which are I am the door of the sheepfold and I I am the good shepherd. Now, some people... You know, one of, one of the things that you get from this is a lesson on how symbolism in the Bible can work and how metaphor in the Bible can work. Some people think you got to stick with the same symbol all the way through. And if somebody is a door, he cannot in the next breath turn into a shepherd. But here's a good example of the fluidity of symbolism in the Bible. In one breath, Jesus is the door. In the next breath, he's the shepherd. And it's okay because he's just emphasizing two different things. Mm-hmm. I think it's Revelation chapter 19 where you have heaven described as a great marriage where the church is first described as, of course, the bride of Christ. We all 
know and are familiar with that idea. Mm-hmm. But then there are also the wedding guests. And in one, you know, it's in the same vision, but it's just a matter of emphasis. In the first part of it, we're the bride of Christ. That emphasizes the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, the being the guest kind of em- emphasizes the, the joy and the celebration that we have as being a part of God's people. So, yeah. you know, you've got here Jesus wanting to emphasize two things. I think in the first place with the door, he's emphasizing access through him. In the second place, he's emphasizing his leadership and care and uh, yeah. shepherding for the people. Yeah. Now, now, there's one other thing. I, I know, mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry to interrupt no, you, no, but no, I no, want to say another theory is that perhaps the door and the shepherd are the same thing. Because I read one, mm-hmm. and I forgot where I read it, but somebody had done some research into Palestinian shepherds, and mm-hmm. there was this idea that the sheepfold really had no gate or door. There was just an opening. Mm-hmm. And at night, the shepherd would sleep in the doorway. Mm-hmm. So he was actually the door and the shepherd at the same time. Yeah, And he would do that to close that off. So if anything tried to, to come through that way, he'd be there blocking it blocking its entrance, whether it was a thief or a wolf or whatever, um, which is a nice sign of protection and um, an explanation of that. But I don't think we have to explain a contradiction here. This is just the way symbolism works. And Jesus is speaking in a figure, as John said in verse 6. Yeah, uh, I've heard some research on that as well. As a matter of fact, I was looking for a picture for us to post with this episode and most of the pictures I found were with an opening in the, you know, the pen of the sheep with the shepherd laying there sleeping at the gate. Or, you know, he okay. is the gate sleeping in that yeah. opening. Yeah. So that was something I saw. Uh, but on the other, we don't really have to prove this, but I guess the the idea is with the shepherding, some of them might have slept in the gate, but you see the mention of a gatekeeper there at the beginning. Uh, he said in verse 3 to him the gatekeeper opens uh, some some uh, shepherds they would leave at night and they would hire a guy to uh, keep the gate overnight and uh, just pretty much a guard to make sure people don't come in and so in the morning whenever the shepherd would come the gatekeeper would open only for the shepherd and so the shepherd would come and call to his sheep. The sheep would follow him because they knew his voice. Um, so I get either one of those scenarios, it works for Jesus being the gate, and it also works for him being the shepherd. Like we said, he doesn't have to just be one of them, but it works. Uh, also, there's something interesting. I just want to see what you think about this. Lipscomb, uh, in his commentary on this, uh, in verse 3 it says the sheep hear his voice and call out or he calls to his own sheep by his name and leads them out. Lipscomb says that in eastern shepherding the shepherds would have named their sheep individually just as we name our pets, hmm. our domesticated pets. I mean, well, what do you think about that? I think uh, it would be pretty tough if he had a lot of sheep <laughs> and what would they have named I, them? I believe like? it. I believe it because you know I think about David, and it seemed that David spent a lot of time alone with sheep. Mm -hmm. And after a while, human nature desires companionship. And it's only natural 
to turn you know a sheep into into a pet, you know, <laughs> a pet, and, yeah. and you have this the the story that Nathan told David, you know, Second Samuel twelve oh, yeah. about this guy had a pet ewe lamb, so it happened, you know, they had sheep as pets. Yeah, I remember this guy last week. I was up in Indiana doing a meeting, and I was talking with this guy who used to raise cattle, and he would raise them for for meat, and he would tell mm-hmm. his kids, he would warn them, do not name the cow, do not name these cattle. Mm-hmm. And uh, one year, every year, they'd have just a few, and they would slaughter them, sell some of it, and freeze some of it. And one year, they named them, mm-hmm. and it was a lot tougher to take them to the market or the slaughterhouse or whatever they did yeah. that year because they were named. So I, if I were the shepherd, I would be wary of that, but maybe these were wool sheep or yeah. something <laughs> that he just sheared, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, they're not making... Uh, euros out of these sheep, probably. Not, not to get way off base, though, but there was a very different relationship between people and food in those days and in these days. You know, yeah. these days you go to the supermarket and you get meat, and it doesn't look like an animal at all. In fact, if your kids go in there and there's a fish market that still has a head on the fish, ooh, gross! Yeah. But, you know, if it was frozen in some package had a label on it, they wouldn't think twice about throwing it into the skillet. Yep. And part of that is a little... Part of that is bad. We don't appreciate where the food comes from. We don't... It's not as sacred to us, if I may use that term. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of the rituals that the Jews went through in preparation of their meat, in sacrificing of their meat, in knowing the animals that they were slaughtering... Mm-hmm. And the giving them to the priests for offerings to God, they had a lot more respect for where their food came from, and they weren't so consumer oriented. It was yeah. sustenance from God, and it was counted a blessing, and a great sac- something had to sacri- be sacrificed. And today we just go to the market and buy stuff that doesn't even look like anything. From Earth or from yeah. God, even though it is, it's just been processed to the point of oblivion, and uh, that's kind of off base. But you you made me think of that when you're talking about the naming of the sheep. But getting sure back to the, the purpose of it, I mean the 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 shepherd. And I want to talk about this more in the application. He knows his sheep, and the sheep know him. Yeah, it's a special. That's probably what Lipscomb was there. talking about. It doesn't necessitate a name, but it would be helpful. Yeah, it shows that even a greater level of a relationship there. Well, let me ask you about another thing that deals with the sheep here. In verse 16, I hope I'm not skipping anything that we were wanting to mention in between these two. Uh, but down in verse 16, he talks about having other sheep that are not of this fold. And he talks about having one flock, but another fold. So there are some that make the assertion here that, okay, there's one flock with one shepherd, but there are different folds within the flock. What do you think about that? Well, this reminds me of an early, a time when I first started working. I I was a youth minister, and I was at a lunch with a group of people that were not all of the same faith, not all of the same um, religious group, and there were some uh, folks that were uh, members of mainline denominations, 
And uh, one one fellow in the Churches of Christ got into an argument with a fellow in one of the denominations, I don't know which one, it doesn't matter, over denominationalism and whether or not it's part of God's plan. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the member of the Church of Christ challenged the guy in the denomination to give him a book, chapter, and verse that shows denominations in the New Testament. And then he just kind of sits back and crosses his arms and waits for it knowing that there are no denominations in the New Testament. Yeah. And this guy throws out John ten sixteen, but he only quotes part of it. He says, now, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So you explain that. And I remember him just getting really angry and saying, you explain that. There's, there are many folds. And so he was equating the folds with denominations. Yeah. And he didn't even know or quote the last part where Jesus said, I'm going to bring them also. Now, you mentioned that he says there will be one flock and one shepherd, but maybe not one fold. But when he says, I'm going to bring them, the picture is bringing them into the fold. And how can you have one flock in separate folds? Mm -hmm. But even then, he says, I'm bringing them. So I think even though he doesn't use the phrase one fold... The goal here, obviously, from the language of bringing them in, seems to be to create one fold containing yeah. one flock over which there is one shepherd. So if you read the whole thing, that whole idea that this is an analogy to denominationalism just just falls apart. Yeah, I think it is so far from the, it's from the heart of this. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing to do with the context of what's going on, the imagery... Is a pen with a bunch of sheep in it, and you have you know there's a flock or a fold. I'm not sure. Maybe I need to go do a little bit of research on those words for flock and fold and see if they're different organizational terms for sheep. But you have a flock, you have a fold, you have a herd, whatever you want to call it, inside of this pen. Now he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He doesn't say they're of another fold or they belong to another flock or anything. He just says I have more sheep that don't belong to this fold right now. I'm going to go get them so that there can be one flock. And who, what, contextually, historically, who would that have been? Who would have been on Jesus' mind? The Gentiles, for sure. Obviously. Yeah. Anybody who has read the New Testament. He was not saying, like, I'm going to get the Pharisees, but there's another fold of Sadducees. He's talking to a Jewish audience. Yeah. Yeah. He's talking to a Jewish audience, and he's he's and this is what eventually happened: is it started in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. Yeah. And he went out outside the fold, or went to other folds, however you want, and made the two one. Ephesians two fourteen through sixteen. Yeah. So you know that's that's what it's about. Yeah. And there's no commentator in the world. I, I've never read a scholar that says, uh, here we have an example of uh, denominationalism early in yeah. Jesus' ministry. The church hadn't even been established yet. Yeah. He's not like, here my is. plan <laughs> is for Christians to disagree on fundamental ideas about my movement. That is my plan. That yeah. is not what Jesus ever said. In fact, in this same book, he'll pray that all of us would be, be one. one yeah. Well, hey, in this same verse, he prays that. Yeah, I want one. I want one flock. Yeah. So this is just a quibble and a proof text yeah. to try to win an argument and 
catch somebody yeah. by surprise. And especially you combine it with passages like First Corinthians twelve, the church is one body. I mean, all like we won't get into a discussion of denominationalism, but suffice it to say, the context here does not allow for verse sixteen to be a a Jesus foretelling, "Hey, I want to have different denominations mm-hmm. in the church." Right, That's and the. People need to be wary of this, though, because, you know, you and I didn't talk about this before the podcast, and you'd heard it independently of me, so it's mm-hmm. really interesting that that this is being used that, that much. Uh, we promised to talk about the Feast of Dedication uh, and what, what that's all about, and basically, you know, everybody today calls it Hanukkah, and Christians make the mistake of saying, Hanukkah is the Jews' Christmas. No, it's mm-hmm. has nothing Just to do with Christmas. It's the same time of the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, back then, it wasn't one of the bigger feasts uh, because it was a post-biblical feast. In other words, uh, you don't read about the celebration of the Feast of Dedication in the Law of Moses, but between mm-hmm. the Testaments, uh, between the Book of Malachi and Matthew, in that 400-year time period... There was a victory of the Maccabees over the Syrian Greek rulers of Jerusalem, and the temple happened to be rededicated in 164 B.C. And uh, supposedly a miracle accompanied this event that when, when the temple was rededicated, uh, the story goes that God miraculously made one day's worth of oil burn brightly for, get ready, eight days. So Hanukkah lasts eight days, and some people not familiar with Judaism but just living in this world today has probably heard about eight days. And what did Adam Sandler do a animated movie around Christmas time for Jews called yeah. Eight Crazy Days or something yeah. like that? But it's uh, based upon a miracle that supposedly happened during that time. Uh, it's become more popular because of Jews wanting to have. Um, you know, uh, an alternative to Christmas during the winter holidays. But in those days, it was not on the same level as Pentecost, Feast of Booths, or the Passover, which are three feasts that we've talked about also during mm-hmm. this podcast. Yeah. And he's standing, in verse 23, he's standing in um, the Colonnade of Solomon. Now, this is... Solomon's porch, or Solomon's uh, portico. Oh, yeah, portico. For some reason, I just lost the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, the really long stretch on one of the sides of the temple, um, you know, where there are lots of Jews gathered, lots of preaching is going on, lots of teaching from the scriptures is going to be going on over here in Solomon's colonnade. Um, so the crowds that he's going to have are going to be pretty big. If he's teaching over here, especially when he's teaching about the things that he's teaching about, being the son of God, being the one who's sent from the father, being one with the father. So he's definitely in a place where there are going to be um, the kind of people that he's looking for. And it's certainly a time when they're all going to be there being this close or being during this feast of dedication. Yeah. Um, you know, this uh, last, another thing I wanted to talk about was near the end of verse 41, 
the idea that John did no sign. He's talking about John the Baptist, one of the most important prophets in the entire Bible. When we put together a series here at Asheville Road on prophets, priests, and kings, we had to come up with 13 individuals. Well, no, actually 11, counting Jesus Christ, because we spent three weeks on Jesus as Jesus prophet, Jesus priest, Jesus king. But uh, out of that 11, John definitely made the list. There was no question that he would be one of the foremost prophets. And yet we learn here that he was not a miracle worker. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because there are some groups today that believe that if your church doesn't have miracles or if you don't believe in modern-day miracles, uh, certain charismatics would say that uh, you don't have God. Uh, you that, that the miraculous and the religious are intertwined, inseparable. And, uh, I, you know, John would take issue with that. Mm-hmm. I, now, I do, you know, he's talking about signs, and there were some things that John knew intuitively that he didn't, some revelation he received, obviously, that came from heaven. Yeah. So, we called him a prophet, and prophecy is listed as a miracle. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so, yeah, we could quibble over that, but I, I think that I'm just trying to challenge the idea that in biblical times it was a miracle every day. And that yeah. all of God's leaders were walking on water and turning water into wine and, you know, yeah. feeding 5,000 people with a few fish and loaves. Yeah. That's not the way it was. Jesus did those signs to confirm that he was the Son of God. The apostles did a few signs to confirm their message. The early church had spiritual gifts for that mm-hmm. purpose. But once the word was confirmed, the miracles ceased. God has always kept the miracles at a minimum. Mm-hmm. Because he has nat- he put natural laws in place because these are the laws he prefers the world to operate under. And a miracle is a miracle in, in that it is rare. I mean, to say miracles are yeah. common is to totally destroy the whole definition of a miracle, in my mind. Yeah. But I, maybe that's not as interesting to you as it was to me. I just Well, I think it, it definitely adds some strength to the claim, you know, that you don't have to be walking around healing folks all day every day in order to be considered a follower of God or, you know, somebody that's proclaiming God. Even. Yeah. All right. We'll be back in a little bit. And we're back, and we're going to apply John chapter 10 to our lives, and we're going to start... the 66. <laughs> Andrew has a great movie. So dramatic answer. voiceover. Do, do it. I can't. Just, I can't do it in a brochure. The 66. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start laughing. Uh, the 66 podcast. <laughs> See, I can't do it without laughing. <laughs> it sounds better uh, if I'm not laughing. Anyway, uh, for so the, for the third part, 
the part no one listens to. We're doing application. <laughs> Ap- apply. Yeah. So I, was I have say such it, a thin, thin, reedy voice that I can't... Apply. Yeah. We're going to make some applications, folks. And uh, there, there, there are quite a few here. So instead of trying to give them a neat little, you know, alliterated uh, order, we're just going to go through them as we come to them in the text. Makes and the first, the first one I see is that Jesus is the door. Uh, that's, of course, from, from the... Uh, should have wrote the verse down. Um, verse 7 of John 10, the third I am statement. I am the door of the sheep. We already talked about the, you know, how that's possible with him also being the shepherd, but we didn't talk about the significance of what it means to say Jesus is the door. And Basically, the idea there is he's our access into the fold. He's our mm-hmm. access into the fold, which denotes the protection of God uh, the the fellowship with God and with His people, the blessings and and all the the care the caring that we need and the the uh, protections and and all the things that we desire in yeah. that fold have to come through Jesus Christ. It's kind of a prelude to what we're going to read in John fourteen here in a few weeks when we get over there. It's the imagery of. The only way a sheep is going to get into that pen, you know, except somebody picking him up and throwing him in over the fence, the only way a sheep's getting into the pen is to go through the gate. You know, that's the only way the sheep's going to get in there. And so the only way we get into the fold that we talked about in the second section a little bit, the one fold, the one flock of God, that is the church, the only way you get into that is through Christ. There's no other access to God. There's no other access to... Uh, the only true God other than through his son through the Christ and that is Jesus so all this the talk that we would think a lot of us would like to uh, say you know well you can as long as you get to God through whatever avenue you know any path yeah you can get there through Buddha through uh, Allah or blah da 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 you know just want to make everybody okay you know all religions are fine you know like the the uh, old illustration of, you know, it's like scientists looking at a different part of an elephant, but it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's all, all still the same, the same thing. thing. Yeah. Well, it's not. Uh, or Which at is least a Buddhist saying, by the way. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Hmm. Well, then, um, there you go. There you but, go. you know, yeah, that that that's the first one, and we'll have more to say about that, of course, when we get to 14, verse 6. Yeah. Uh, so the next one comes up in verse 10. Where, you know, we see that Jesus is on a mission of life, and and I would include with that joy. But mm-hmm. we have to be careful with what what that exactly means, right? Yes, I've heard, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have too. All three of them, uh, this being applied to, you know, Jesus said he came that we can have an abundant life. You know, we should have life and have it more abundantly. That means that we need to be living life, you know, to the fullest. We need to be waking up early, um, going to bed, you know, late, enjoying all day. Strap on that bungee cord and yeah. jump off that bridge. Yeah, travel the world. Just 
that kind of, you yeah. know, like living a full, fun-filled life. Yeah. But that's really not anywhere near the context of what Jesus is talking about here. He is contrasting himself to those who came before him, which we mentioned a little bit in our first section when we overviewed the text. Um, look at the first part of verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And he's talking about verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Robbers, The sheep did not listen to them. So he's contrasting himself to the Pharisees, most likely. Uh, mm-hmm. That fits the immediate context very well. Putting heavy burdens on people they can't bear. Yeah. So you have these Pharisees that are trying to bring in... Well, they're bringing in death. And you see in Matthew 23 when Jesus is uh, going through those seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Oh, yeah. He says, you know, you make them... or He basically says you lead them into death, is what he tells them at one mm-hmm. point. You're leading them into death, making them children of death. Well, that certainly fits here. So that's what the Pharisees are coming to do. And they're doing that by uh, their laws and traditions and not really being true to the law of Moses. And then Jesus says, I am coming to give you life, not death. And that life is going to be the same kind of life he was talking about when he said, I am the bread of life. When he said to the woman at the well, you know, I have the living water. If you drink this, you won't need any water anymore. Mm -hmm. What he's talking about is eternal life. I have come so that you can have life. You can have more of it. You can have eternal life in me, uh, Abundantly. Yes. And, and there is another extreme that we should be careful of, and that is that he's simply talking about existence. Yeah. You know, which would be miserable in some cases. He's not just saying, I can make you live forever. You know, he's saying, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm here to bring you life and to have it more abundantly. But he's not talking about fun exactly, although an abundant life is. It's deeper than that. Yeah. That's our point. Is it's deeper. It's more than, than just saying party you need to travel the, the world and see. Which I mean, is all good. They're all good things to do. I'm not knocking. That, tick off the boxes in that bucket list. Yeah. You know that's not what he. That's not what he's saying. He's saying have a good life, full of healthy relationships and fulfilling work and purpose and mm-hmm. and. You know, most of all, fulfillment in Christ and freedom from sin and guilt. Yeah, it's a life with that peace that passes understanding. Yes, yeah. With the joy that only comes in Christ, the joy that Paul has in Philippians and he talks about in Philippians. It's a lot more than just, like you said, checking boxes off a bucket list. All right, here's another one. Jesus is our shepherd. Not only that, he is our good shepherd. There are so many applications we can make from that. Mm-hmm. We'll hit some of the ones I don't want to elaborate on for the sake of time really quickly. Yeah. He is our leader. He is our guide. He is our protector. He is our savior. Okay. Yeah. But I want to look at it in terms of church leadership because I think that there, there are a lot of things said about leading churches, particularly with the elders who are the pastors, the shepherds of the church. There are a lot of things that are said about their duties through qualifications that are given and uh, examples that that are seen and some other instructions here and there. But a lot is left out 
in terms of what should an elder do in this case or that case, and the question can be answered just in the question, what what would Jesus do? Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting when Peter is instructing elders as a fellow elder. He says in First Peter chapter five, verses two and following, to shepherd the flock of God. Yeah. And tell them to be pastors, to shepherd the flock of God among you, to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And what that means to me is, Jesus is your example for leadership. And how did Jesus lead? He led through love. He led through example. He led through self-sacrifice. And if we could just learn that as leaders of the church, and, you know, I'm talking about elders here because they are to be the shepherds, but um, certainly ministers could learn from this, deacons could learn from this, Bible class teachers could learn from this, mothers and fathers could learn from this. There are all kinds of leaders and mentors in churches. Mm-hmm. Um, just lead like Jesus led. Yeah. And and that is a big part of this, I am the good shepherd. Um, maybe a, a secondary application, but one that I choose to emphasize because it's one that we seem to miss yeah. so many times. Yeah, one that doesn't get made very often, so I think it's a good one. Or if it's made, out. it's not followed. You know, you yeah. look at the leadership's that we have in you know our country and our churches and our families and it's not Christ like leadership. It's autocratic yeah. leadership, domineering leadership. It's just not it's not the kind that is effective and loving and life affirming. Yeah. Well let me ask you this real quick before we move on. Do you think that maybe in the like underneath or I guess some subtext here would be Psalm twenty three? Yeah. Yes. Uh probably was on Jesus' mind, don't mm-hmm. you think? When he, yeah. When he said do you this? think the Jews, like the Pharisees, would have immediately recognized? The or do you Lord think they would have been? Shepherd, and he's I'm just wondering himself with the Lord. Yeah. Is that, I wonder, like, if I'm standing there as a Pharisee, if I'm just thinking about what he said about, you know, the little allegory he just made. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I'm just thinking about that allegory, or if I'm when he says, "I'm the good shepherd." If my mind goes back to the Psalms, and I think again, well, David said, uh, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. It's this guy saying he's the Lord, but they don't really, they don't really um, hammer home that he's saying he's equal with God because of that statement, right? But I don't think you're too far off the mark. Okay, Um, you know, the one another very interesting application that I want to make comes from verses 17 through 18, where Jesus points out that no man takes his life, but he lays down his life voluntarily. I lay it down of my own accord. We need to think about the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus. And this isn't the only place where that is said. Some think that he has in mind, you you talked about him having Psalm 23 in mind, possibly, in Mm -hmm. the Good Shepherd comment. Some have said that he might have been thinking about Isaiah 53 when he made this statement, where in verse 12, uh, it is said of the suffering servant that he poured out his soul to death. 
uh, he he being the subject and the object there that he he voluntarily gave up his soul to death and that's possible if at the very least it's another corroborating verse to this you know I also think of Galatians 2:20 where Paul said of Jesus that he loved me and gave himself for me and yeah. I also think about Matthew 26 where he told his disciples uh, I could ask my father, and he'd send twelve legions of angels to deliver me. So it wasn't a matter of his being delivered over by Judas or his being delivered over by the Roman authorities. He laid down his own life. Yeah. I have a couple of uh, interesting quotations. They were interesting to me that I wanted to share along this line. The first is from Octavius Winslow, and he said, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. I think it says it all. Yeah. And then a little lengthier quotation here from John Stott, who says that uh, it's essential to keep together these two complementary ways of looking at the cross. On the human level, Judas gave him up to the priests, who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers, who crucified him. But on the divine level... The Father gave him up, and he gave himself up to die for us. And as we face the cross, then we can say to ourselves both, I did it, my sin sent him there, and he did it, his love took him there. So Stott looks at it as, looks at the cross as an exposure of both human evil and God's love at the same time. And, and I don't think we get the full sense of the cross unless we do that. Uh, Peter preached this in his sermon on Pentecost, making you know what's a, a bit of a cryptic statement in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Mm-hmm. You want to say to Peter, okay, which one? You can't have it both ways. Was it God's definite plan and according to his foreknowledge? Or did the, the Jews hand him over and did the lawless men, the Romans, kill him? Mm-hmm. And Peter would say, I, it is both ways. It is both ways. Yep. Both God planned this and the Jews are responsible for it. Yeah, It's, it's the way God's providence works. Um, and it's mysterious to us. But when you look at the cross, what you see is a voluntary sacrifice, which means... That although human sin was involved and was the cause, God's love was also involved and was yeah. also the cause. Yeah. It's a really beautiful idea. Another part of that, I mean, it's a totally different application, but another part of that I think is really, um, really cool for us. It just I'm trying to think of a better word. Really interesting, I guess. In verse 7 and 18 where he says... Um, He's going to lay down his life. He says, in verse 18, he says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It reminds me of in Revelation where Jesus has talked about as having the keys to death and Hades. And it's just really cool imagery to me that Jesus has authority over his his life, you know, as a human, as a man. He said, you know, I have authority to give my life up, which means that he could have the authority not to give it up, I guess, if he wanted to. 
But I have the authority to give my life up, mm-hmm. to lay it down, and then I have the authority to pick it back up again. So he's foretelling his resurrection here, and it's just really... It really shows how our salvation was hanging in the balance in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus yeah. prayed, let this cup pass from me. If that was all that he prayed, and he didn't follow it up with, yet not my will, but thy will be done... Mm-hmm. According to what we're reading here, he could have gotten up and said, "If Jesus says, if if God says there's no other way, I'm not going through with this." Mm-hmm. Um, as a, an autonomous, self-governing being, which he was, mm-hmm. uh, he could have forfeited our salvation, the whole world's salvation. Yeah, it looks like he definitely mm-hmm. had authority over his own life. So yeah. it's just interesting. Really, but, there's so much to talk about there. Yeah. Um, real quickly, verse 35, another application is very important. The scripture cannot be broken. Scripture is irrevocable. Um, because of inspiration, it contains no mistakes, and whatever it dictates, it will come to pass. What was the question we had the other night at church? It was something about, um, claiming the word of God. Yeah. You know, is that is that a, you know what about all this language about claiming the word of God? I hear this all the time, and uh, you know the answer to that is the word of God is going to come to pass whether you claim it or not. I understand the people that say that are kind of trying to play a psychological game with their followers that you need to pay attention to this. This promise is for you. It's yours. It has a lot of association with the health and wealth gospel, yeah. so I would I would like stray away these from it. Blessings, or but you know, if God says something is going to be yours, you don't have to say, "All right, I got. I'm going to go get my claim ticket," or you know, I'm good. <laughs> you you obey, and the promises will be yours. You don't have to go claim it. It's like you know, gold spectators. Staking yeah. out their their property or whatever. No, you know God God's word will accomplish the purposes for which it was given. Isaiah fifty five. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whole thing is really about verse thirty. This is where we'll end the application, where Jesus says, "I and the Father are one." Yeah. Once again, he's claiming. Speaking of claims, he's saying, "I am divine. I am the Son of God." This is the thesis. That John has been working with from the beginning, and right. uh, he's he said this. You know, we pointed out one other example, but he has said this many, many times already at this point in the Gospel of John. Right, uh, just to name a few, and it's surprising that the Jews ask him, you know, how long are you going to keep us in the in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Maybe they just wanted a simple yes or no. Yeah, that's verse twenty-four. Yeah, because they weren't smart enough to pick up on the other ones, but. I mean, we already mentioned in John chapter 8, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. I mean, what more do you want? 8, 8, Yeah, John 8. Did I mention a verse? I think he said 424. Oh, I don't know what I was looking at. I meant to say John 8. I must have been looking at the the actual verse here. But in John 8, you know, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how the Jews would not have picked up that he's claiming to be the Christ there. Also in John 7, in verse 28 and 29, he's talking about the Father who sent him. 
So again, making claims to be from the Father. And then in John chapter 4, when he's talking to the woman at the well, verses 25 and 26, he just tells her, I'm the Christ. Mm-hmm. She, she says something like, I've heard of the Christ. He says, well, that's me. Or mm-hmm. the one of whom you speak, I am he. Yeah. So he's already made claims to be the Christ. They haven't picked up on it yet. And we're just halfway through the book. Yeah. It's going to come again and again and again. And don't forget that the theme of the book is in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Many other mm-hmm. signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other right. words, that he's God, and that by believing you may have life through his name. So, you know, uh, this is what John is aim, aiming at, his main theme throughout the whole thing. We see it pop up again here in, in chapter 10. Yeah, I think it's interesting. He comes in verse 25, I know we're running out of time, but he says back to them, after they say, tell us plainly, he says, I told you. He's like, I did tell yeah. you. And you, did not, and you do not believe. Mm-hmm. And then he just goes on to tell them, hey, if you don't believe in me, believe in my works. That's what he's going to say at the very end of this whole thing. He's going to say, judge by, uh, he says in verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, that right. you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Yeah. So he's appealing to these works that John has been recording. Right. And so that'll wrap up chapter 10. Uh, we're glad you joined us today. Uh, you can check us out on Twitter, and that is our handle is at B66Podcast. And 66 is a number. Uh, you can go to our website, the66.net. 66 is a number again there. Or you can reach us at email uh, at akingsley at arclc.com or dkaiser at arclc.com. And next week we'll be covering Lazarus. I'm looking forward to it. John Chaffis. John 11. John 11. See you then.